Well, welcome to Grace Point. If this is your first time with us, uh, we're finishing up, wrapping up a series today. Uh, ba- basically, we've been five weeks in one verse. Uh, but welcome to Grace Point. Welcome to Northwest Arkansas. If you're just now coming into the area, we're a bona fide, I would say, arts community. Uh, in that, I mean, we have a lots uh, of great and exciting things happening and creativity all abounds. In fact, next week we'll have a new exhibit out in our, in our gallery area. And, uh, I like art to a degree as I can understand it. Uh, I am learning to appreciate it more and more. As, as we go on. And I know there's different forms of art. There's canvas art. I'm not even going to go to all the different art forms because I want to show my ignorance. Uh, we have art trained people down here that are art educators as well down here. Uh, and they can correct me. But, you know, you take, you take art and you look at it from uh, just a, a blank canvas. You know, you create something out of nothing, and it's just a, it's just a whiteboard. It's just a sheet of paper on top of, of some little frame there, and you make art, and it's, it's worth a lot, and it says a lot. Or you have a clump of clay on a, on a, on a little spinning wheel, and you c- create something of beauty and value. Uh, I, I like that art, but there's another the kind of a restorative art. I don't know. Maybe there's a term for it where you... Uh, where you take something vintage, something neglected, something broken, and you reclaim it, and you redeem it, and you make it beautiful again. I can appreciate that a little bit more in my, in my limited mind on, of art appreciation. Because, here's why, because I can see what it once was, and then I can see what it is now, and I go, wow. I mean, they took it to a whole new level. They took it off the chart. I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's incredible. Um, and so as I think about art and you think about art today, you might have passed, might have noticed you passed a little piece of art. I would call it a piece of art on the way in. It was sitting out right there as you walked into the building. Uh, it was a 1970 Chevy Cheville. Uh, how many of y'all even noticed the car there? Probably how many of y'all have more testosterone than estrogen? All right. Okay. But most of you guys probably notice the car more than the women. I say women don't appreciate cars, but uh, not getting sexist here. But that car has a story behind it. It didn't always look like that. It looked uh, pristine and beautiful when it left the showroom, but it looks beautiful now in its restored state. Uh, the owners of that, let us, let us kind of put it out there uh, today for, for everyone to see. But it was interesting when they bought the car, they knew it needed some work, but they didn't know it needed as much work as it needed. And as they take it and drive off with it, they then take it into the shop to get fixed and, re- and restored as back as they could to, to, uh, to its original state and even maybe uh, uh, cloning it from, a, from another make of a car. But the point being is that once they started peeling back the layers and sanding off the paint and, and realizing that there were parts of this car that was held together by Bondo and cardboard, they said, and rust. And so it was a wonder that it would go down the, down the, down the interstate and not just fall apart on them. And they, they, they took it into the shop to... To, to get worked on, thinking it was going to take uh, about six to eight weeks to kind of get it up, up to speed. Two and a half years later, they get the car out. And they literally had to strip the car down to nothingness. And as they did, we got a couple of photos that we can show you. That's the car that's now out in front of the church. 
okay? But they had to strip it down. The, even the frame, and I don't even know what parts of the car are, are what. I can break a car but not fix a car. And so the under, the, the, the frame that the car sets on was literally bent. And they found, they discovered through the whole process that there were about three major collisions that this car had gone through. So it was not in a good shape. But what they had done, the previous owners had done, is they'd taken good paint jobs, they'd put on top of that and tried to make it work and look good. And so they could sell it and get rid of it. But the car has a story. Some of it is a broken story. Some of it is is a dark story, an unknown story, that what happened when, that, that you would do that and you would neglect it and hold it together with Bondo and cardboard and th- that, that it would end up like that, that it would end up actually after a period of two and a half years looking like this and what it took to get from there. They only spent a couple thousand dollars buying it. New, off of the showroom in 1970, it was understood that the car was somewhere around $2,800. Today, the car is valued at between thirty-five dollars and $40,000. Now, think about that for a moment. When the car was new and it never had one mile put on it, when the car didn't have a dent or a scratch or had no story or history to it, when it was innocent and beautiful in the showroom of some Chevy dealer somewhere, it was worth $2,800. But it has a story and it's broken and it's restored and it's got history. It's got rust. It's got bondo. It's got brokenness. But throughout all of that, because of time and energy and sweat and attention and money to detail, the car is now worth hundreds of times more than it was worth the day of. Think about that. How does that compare to you? You think about a child who's born in all of its innocence and all of its beauty, and you think this little innocent child that can barely goo and God can make some horrible smells. But I mean, other than that, it's a beautiful, innocent child. And you hold that child and you love that child, and they can never do anything wrong. But yet, you know that it will. Terrible twos are coming. And you know the teenage years are coming. And you know that there will be stories and there will be crashes and there will be accidents and there will be rust. And sometimes there's cover-up, paint jobs to just cover it over, to make it look a little good. And we pass it off and, and it has some value, but it doesn't have the value that it could have. See, whenever we encounter Christ, He does such an amazing work in us that He does a restoration, a rebuilding. Sometimes He has to strip it back to its bareness. Sometimes He has to sand it down. And with this restoration, it takes skill, it takes time, it takes money, it takes willingness, it takes patience, it takes endurance. Not to quit, but to let God get in and do his work. And it's not going to take six to eight weeks. It's not going to be a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars. It's going to be tens of thousands of dollars. And it's going to take two and a half years. It may take the rest of your life. In fact, I'll say this. It's going to take the rest of your life to get you where you need to be. As it is mine. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. And I am sure of this. That he who began a good work, 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 he began a good work in you, 
will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's not finished. He's got a lot of work to do on all of us. And He is working, He's working, He's working. And it's a good work that He is going to do. Now, we've been five weeks in one verse, five weeks breaking down a verse word by word by word because that's what God was doing in my life and working in my life over the past several months. And I, and I developed this kind of graph. It's, it's mine. It's kind of crude. It's, it's my visual because I'm a visual kind of person. And I put it up there on the screen last week. So throw it back up there, guys. Uh, this, this is kind of that, that, that sequence of events. And my 16-year-old son points out that I was wrong. That'll keep you humble. And he pointed out that my dad, he said, notice that whenever, because he didn't have this last week, last week it had the restoration fed right back into regret. It's like, you're just going to keep living in circles. No. You want to get off that circle. All right. You want to head up north to get out of there. Okay. So a good point. Josh pulled, pulled, called me out on it. But, but let's just kind of review this real quickly because this is our part. There's a God part, there's an our part. This is our part. And we've got to own our part. If we don't own our part, we'll never hear this. We'll never experience God's part. He talks about regret. I talk about regret and then hitting the bottom. It's kind of like falling through the branches. How many branches will you hit before you finally stop? Sometimes you stop on the first branch and you grab a hold and you go, whoa, okay, not going to do that again. And you climb yourself back up. Other times you hit one branch, but you didn't learn your lesson. You hit another one, you hit another one. And you just keep hitting until a thud happens. And I think is, some people, I go look at them, I go, when are you going to hit the bottom? When? When is the last branch going to finally break you and you hit regret? You go, I have got to change. This can't keep going on like this. How many relationships, how many jobs, how many financial investments, how many getting ahead of yourself, how many arguments, how, how, how many? But sometime, hopefully, you'll hit regret. Now, again, I hate to say that, but hopefully you'll hit regret, but then you'll start the cycle around to relinquishing. And that's when we talk about Second Chronicles chapter 7, uh, verse 14, when he talks about humble yourselves. We need to humble ourselves. And that humble is not humiliate ourselves. We literally intentionally put ourselves into a humble frame of mind, into a humble attitude when we realize, dude, I got myself here. I got I, I, I to gotta stop this now. I can't drive this ship any longer. I can't chart my own course. I need God in my life. At some point, you got to get there. Relinquish control. Then you move to refresh. This is that confessional part. This is whenever I come clean. Okay, regret. Okay, God, uh, you're in control. But hey, man, I still got a plate full here of, of regret. And I need to offload it, God. I need to get this out of my life. And, 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 and so he talks about it. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and will pray. And I really point out that that's confessional prayer, I believe. That he's really calling us into a, a spirit, a tone of confession. And man, I tell you what. Throughout this time, I know some of you have shared some deep, dark things with me. And some of some other people in your life. But some darkness has been there and, and you didn't know what to do with it. And you've just been offloading it. 
And sometimes you're speaking it out. It's one of the best things to get the healing process going. Refreshment starts coming in. Now, here's a problem. It's not going to be on this graph right here. Here's a problem because what some people will do is they will hit confession and then they'll cycle back around to regret. They don't, don't change. So 1 John 1, 9 says this, If we confess, He is faithful and just. And he, so we bring our dirt. He, we, if we do this, then He will do that. I want you to notice this. I'm going to point this out in a few moments. There's a promise here, but with this promise, there's a condition. If we, that's the condition, if we confess, what will he do? He will do this. He is faithful. He will forgive he, uh, our sins. He will cleanse. He will make the unrighteousness and the, go away and the righteousness come. But will we confess? And then will we move to the next one? Because what happens so many times is we rebound. We don't want to rebound. At that point, we want to move to the next one, which is realign. So kind of go back to that circle for a moment, guys. We want to realign. This is when we seek his face. If my people who call by my name will humble themselves, will, seek, will, will, will pray and will seek my face. This is when, okay, I've been seeking a lot of other things. I've been going after a lot of things. I've been building a lot of other towers. I've been building a whole lot of other castles. I've been investing in a whole lot of other stuff. But now, God, I have got to get my eyes off of those things that are destroying me. I am seeking you. I'm putting you first, first in my life. And then we repent. Then we change. We get rid of that dirt to turn away from our evil ways. And then we can kind of start seeing the restoration because that's what we're going to talk about today is the whole restoration that God does. But we have got to, got to, got to, got to see our part in this. We've got to bring ourselves in humility. We've got to bring ourselves in confessional prayer. We've got to bring ourselves to seeking Him. We've got to bring ourselves to turning away from the things that we keep going to whatever that is fill in the blank fill it in when you when you think about the promises of god there are over two thousand of them and i just challenge you this week find as many as you can find as many promises in scripture as you can jot them down but also when you're finding the promises take the due diligence do the due diligence take the time and find the condition that is attached to the promise because a lot of the promises of god are there and we claim them but we don't pay attention to the condition. I just pointed out one. If we confess, He cleanses. If we don't confess, guess what? We're still dirty. Okay? Here's another one. Very familiar verses I'm going to give you. I'm just going to give you two samples. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Great. We all know this. For whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, we claim the promise. I want eternal life. That's what I want. But do we understand the condition? i got to believe. I've got to have a relationship with Him. The relationship with Him precedes my eternal existence with Him, okay? Here's another one, often abused. Many times you see it in gyms on sports teams. You'll see it even in Christian school sports teams. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. What's the promise? I can do all things. What's the condition? Through Him. If Him isn't a part of your equation, Him being Christ, no. No, you're just, you're just doing it. That's secular humanism. It's through him that I'm able to do all things. So we've got to understand the condition and the promise. So now let's look at our verse that we've been looking at, Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. You'll really quickly notice the condition. The condition is if, if 
If you know the verse, say it with me. Don't look up there. Look at my nose, okay? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, will pray, will seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, heal their land. That's the promise. But the condition is if my people... Now, we've talked for, five, for four weeks about the condition. Now let's talk about the promise. What does God do? This restorative work that He does is a, is a beautiful work because what He does is He restores broken communication. Broken communication. Communication is absolutely vital in every single relationship. Well, you're talking about moms and kids, moms and dads and teenagers... Oh, my goodness, the examples I can give of me wounding my own children, breaking off communication lines because of my harsh words. Be careful that we don't break off a communication. The same it is with God because it's built on a relationship. I pointed that out in verse 14. It says, if my people who are called by my name, it's all about relationship here. We're in a relationship with God, and it's the same way. If we ever stop listening to one another, And I don't mean hearing one another. There's a difference. Listening to one another. Please tell me you know the difference. Hearing the heart. Hearing the emotion. Hearing the thought. Not developing your argument so that you can make sure they hear you. Not pounding harder and yelling louder so that they will hear you. If we stop sharing our thoughts and our feelings, if we stop empathizing with one another, if we stop giving to each other as people, as human beings, if we stop giving each other the benefit of the doubt and skepticism and mistrust is all about our relationship, communication disaster is upon us. And it so happens so often in marriages if I could, could, could keep calculation of, of premarital counseling and then marital counseling, if I was to say, and there's about basically 12 major buckets preparing and rich identifies as major buckets in a marriage, if I could say there's one bucket that rises above all other buckets as an issue in most marriages, whether pre or post uh, ceremonies, and that is communication. And that is conflict resolution. And the ability to do that We've got to communicate with each other. One of the books that I have a lot of uh, young couples read whenever uh, they're first getting married is His Needs, Her Needs. It's a little dated book, but it's still got very practical handles that people can hang on to. And this is one of the things he talks about in communication. He says, speaking to the men, listen up, I tell male clients they should learn to set aside 15 hours a week to give their wives an undivided attention. Huh? (laughs) 15 hours? Does a text message count? What if I send it or a calendar invite? Does that count? You know, because I can type really slow and keep a watch on that, and that would be a part of the communication, surely. You know, communicate 15 hours? Really? But if we were to commit that, level of investment to a marriage, what it would do to our marriages would be incredible. Communication in a marriage will strengthen and sweeten a marriage. I've been talking about marriages, but what's this thing about God? Again, it's about a relationship. Communication with God 
regular, constant 15 hours a week of communication with God, Almighty, the God of the universe, should be very much doable for us. We want that. It will strengthen and sweeten our relationship. What's the first thing that breaks down when, when sin enters into a marriage? What's the first thing that breaks down when sin enters into a relationship with God? Communication. Communication. It's the first thing that breaks down. What did Adam and Eve do in a perfect place, in a perfect garden, as perfect people, when they sinned, what they did? They ran off, covered themselves, and hid from God. And God had to come looking for them. When they used to walk with God in the cool of the evening, they used to commune with God. Now they're running and hiding and not talking. And also, it turns into a blame game. If you hadn't given her to me, you can't even communicate truth. You can't even own your own areas. We have got to understand the value of it and how it breaks down a relationship so quickly. Isaiah 59 verse 2, I read it the the very first week or at least the second week that we were together. Your iniquities have been barriers between you and your God. And your sins have concealed His face from you so that he won't listen. Wow. When sin enters into our relationship with God, communication breaks down. But if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, will pray, confess themselves, confess their darkness, if they will, if they'll seek my face, if they'll turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. So I was thinking about it this past week, that phrase and that whole relationship context. And we just got to drive it, drive it, drive it into our, into, our, into our hearts and our minds. That this is a relationship with God Almighty. Okay? This is not a transaction thing. This is a relationship thing. And so I took those, those, those four phrases there of, of, of praying and of confessing and, and of humility. And I, I took them and I just laid them over Lori and I's relationship. And we had a little argument last Sunday afternoon. Not normal, but it was, it was, it was a proving ground, I guess, for, for me, another pruning moment. But as we're going through that, and I'm thinking through it throughout the week, I'm thinking... Okay, I guarantee you, had I gone to her in humility and went to her and said, you know what, I'm sorry. I did this wrong. And it's not, hey, I did this wrong, but if you would have done that, that's not humility. That's bait and switch. Humility. If I'd have gone to her and said, you know what, I did this wrong and I'm confessing it, you know, sorry for that, sorry the way I talked, whatever. It may have been. And then if I'd have said, you know what? How can I serve you? And I start seeking her. And I say, how can, how can I love you better? You see the relationship, how it's already going to start changing? And then, and then, you know what? What I did was wrong and hurt you deeply. I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to turn from that wicked way. What if you took these things and literally laid them over your marriage? You see how your relationship with your spouse would change? Now take it and do it with God. And all of a sudden, the broken line of communication that our sin has created is now mended again. And now God's hearing us from heaven. Here's the second thing God restores. He doesn't end there. He says, I'm also going to come in. I'm going to forgive their sins. 
We can't, we cannot get away from that word. I know we throw out that word and I've forgiven, but I haven't forgotten. And, you know, I, we, we kind of play this kind of self-righteousness about us as we talk about our forgiveness of someone. But really, have we forgiven them? Because forgiveness isn't based on what they do. At the very heart of the concept of forgiveness is the word give. You give forgiveness. It's the root word. It's at the very center. It's not earned. It's not if, if, when. It's not in case of. It is I forgive you. I, I don't hold you accountable for this. I'm not going to beat you down any longer on the, God is not going to continue when we come in such a way to Him to continue to hold our sin against us. In fact, Psalm 103 says it so beautifully. He says, Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. And a few weeks ago, we heard a great message, the best message the Lord has ever shared, in my opinion, when we talk about the pit. But look what God does. He redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy and satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now, I love the verse 3 through 5, but verse 2 says, forget not his benefits. See, being in a relationship with God has benefits, if you will. He forgives our iniquities. He redeems us from pits in our life. That's what forgiveness brings to us. You know, one author I like to read from as much as I can is a guy named Philip Yancey. He's just, he just straight out truth and grace and just does an amazing job with it. And, and Philip is an amazing author. And, 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 and I was reading uh, this past week one of his books, Vanishing Grace, and, and, and he talks about how he summarized the Bible. 66 books here written over several thousand years, you know, and so how does all of this fit together and so many different authors, three different continents and all this kind of stuff. What is this message of this book in a singular, simple sentence? This is what he said. God gets his family back. God gets his family back. Think about it. Adam and Eve, his first creation, fall. Move away from God, run and hide from God. He has to kick them out of the garden. Sin comes in now, separating us from God. He has to send his son. His son comes and dies. A lot of stuff in between that. But anyway, he sends his son to come and, and to die and to take care of that. And then you kind of move on a little bit further. And then he sends out his church. Hey, this is an important enough message. We need to get this to the ends of the earth. And so he says his church, church, go and tell everyone about this, this forgiving God that we have in Jesus Christ. And at the end, the beautiful thing comes. And, and God comes back again. And he redeems us. And he claims us. And we go. And we sit down at a feast, at a table with our Father, God gets His family back. He does it because forgiveness is there. It's beautiful. The third thing, and I'm probably, they're all important, but this one's big. He restores the shattered fill-in-the-blank. What is it that's shattered in your life? What is it in your life... It's so broken because of your regretful behaviors. You don't think there's any way it can be restored. 
But if you come to him humbly, if you come to him confessional, if you come to him, he can, he can bring it back. He can bring things back. I'm not, I'm not trying to give you a false hope, but here's the reality. God can do when a lot of redemption and a lot of restoration and what he says, he says, I'm going to heal their land. And the word heal there is the Hebrew word rapha. And the Hebrew word rapha is a powerful word. It's used about 60 different times in the Old Testament. At one point, I'm going to do a, a message series on the names of God in the Old Testament because there are 16 different names given to God. And one of those is that he is the God who heals. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, he says, I am the Lord, your healer. I am Yahweh Rapha. I am, that's my name. When I pray about somebody who is sick, God extend their life, God healed them. You know, I'm praying according to the character of God, the name of God, the person of God who is the God who heals. And I do believe and I do pray that God would heal people. Would heal people physically, would heal them emotionally. God can do tremendous things in healing and extending people's lives. But the greatest work of God is when he comes in and he heals their soul. So of the 60 times this word is used in the Old Testament, I looked up a number of them, and one of those I want to read to you is Isaiah 53, verse 5. It says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He took chastisement. We got peace. Not a fair trade. So don't ever say God's fair, because he's not. He took all of the shame for us. He's not fair. If he was fair, we'd all be in trouble. And with his wounds, we are healed. We are Rapha. We're healed through the wounds. Another time it's used is in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 21, whenever, whenever Elisha performs a miracle on a well. A well is supposed to give life. It's water. We can't live without water. We can't live days without water. We've got to have water. Our bodies are largely water. But in this situation, the water was dirty and people were dying and it was not giving life. It was giving death. It was giving sickness. And it says the water has been healed in a the idea is restored to this day, according to the word of Elisha, it was Rapha. It was healed. It was restored. Elisha, God used to bring restoration to a body of water to give life again. There have been moments in recent weeks with myself that I want to be straight with you. Which I looked at my life and I said, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. My life is expendable. I've had the thought, life without Mike would be better off. The heaps of shame, regret. I even had an exit strategy. In the midst of that voices, that voice say, just do it. There was one little verse that kept peering through it all. John 10, 10. When it says that the thief comes to steal 
to kill, and to destroy. That's what the thief does. To kill you as a person. To steal your character. To destroy your vocation, your calling, everything you've lived for. That's why He comes. And there was a voice that said, listen, don't let Him win again. Don't let Him win again. Because Jesus came to give life and to give it abundantly. And there's another verse that, that's why, why we spent five weeks camped out here in Second Chronicles. And it was like, it was like God was saying to me, no, it was, it, I will say this, it was God saying to me, Mike, I'm hearing your prayers. Mike, I already forgave you. Mike, I will heal you. I will restore you. You will be whole again. I don't know what some of y'all are just wrestling with in the deep pit of despair. But realize that God who loves you wants to redeem you from that pit, wants to forgive your sins, wants to heal your life wherever it's shattered. He brings restoration. Will you bow your heads with me? In the stillness of the moment, Would you be open to God bringing restoration? That may mean humbling. It will mean humbling yourself. It it will mean confessing. I know that means going to the closet and digging out the dirt. Are you willing to go there? Are you willing to allow Him to dig? I I didn't plan this. I didn't didn't prepare my prayer partners. But in a moment, we're going to... we're gonna, I'm going to ask my prayer partners to kind of just kind of go around the room. They'll be on the landing. They'll be in the front across here. I'm just going to encourage you because some of y'all, you need somebody to pray with you. You've been doing this alone long enough and you've been cycling, rebounding back around and you need someone to pray with you to break that chain, that cycle that's been going on. It's long enough. You've been hitting the branches of regret and you're bruised and you're beaten. Let God hear your prayers. Let God forgive you. Let God restore, heal, Rafa, your life. You know, restoration, (sighs) it doesn't come free. It it doesn't come without a cost. It, It doesn't come without your life changing. It doesn't come without... That, that humility, it doesn't come without bringing the dirt out into the light and the darkness, in, bringing light into the darkness. It doesn't come without that. You can't go on being the same. It's going to cost you, but it, it's going to cost deeper than that. God doesn't have some pixie dust out there. 
that he just sprinkles over sin and it just kind of goes away or a magic wand and just kind of waves it over it and it just all goes away. I wish he did. It'd make it a lot easier. But it cost. He built this cosmos that it literally would have a price, a payment that would have to be paid. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Mike, I thought you just said that forgiveness was free. It is. Because somebody paid the price already. That somebody is Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we would be in debt to each other and to God for the rest of our lives. But He made it free because He paid for it with His blood. So we've got to, when we think about restoration, when we think about healing and forgiveness of sins, and we think about Him hearing us again, we can't get away from the shed blood of Christ. We cannot. John, whenever John the Baptist was was doing his ministry and he was looking out across the land and had all these throngs of people around him. He said it twice, not just once. He said it twice in one chapter in verse 26 and verse 36. He said, behold, the Lamb of God pointing at Jesus as he come on the horizon. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So whose blood has to be shed but the Lamb of God, Jesus, the one who takes away the sins, I love it, of the world. He could have been very specific. He could have talked about the Jewish nation. He could have talked about the people of Israel. He didn't. He got very specific. He got very broad. He got even into your stuff and my stuff. And he said... That same Jesus came and died for the world. And that reaches you and me. And that's why it's so important that we get this message to the ends of the earth that behold, the Lamb of God has come. He has taken away the sins of the world. So important. We come to this time and we're going to remember this moment, this blood, this body, this life of Jesus that brings restoration to us through a couple elements. And if you're a follower of Christ today, I invite you to take this. If you're walking with Christ, I encourage you to take this. If you're not quite there yet, don't. don't take, there's nothing special about this cup. There's nothing special about this bread. It's what it symbolizes. It's like me putting on a wedding ring but not being married. That doesn't mean anything. Why would you do that? Don't take this cup. Don't take the bread if you're not a follower of Christ. Give your life to Christ. Then celebrate it with the cup and the bread. I'm going to ask our ushers to come right now and to start passing out both the cup and the bread. It's going to pass in front of some of you. Some of you all are going to take it and some of you all are not going to take it. And that's okay. That's really okay. Because we, we have got to really reflect on what this cup means, represents in all of its value. When you think about the life and the ministry of Christ, you think about how he lived, and he lived 33 years on the earth. The last three are the ones that we we get recordings, most of the recordings of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we see his life unfold, and even then, we see most of his life, most of the Gospels are really just the last days of his life. But we do get a good understanding of the life that he lived. I can remember one story when he was in Caesarea Philippi. 
In Caesarea Philippi, he was really kind of preparing his disciples for his departure. He kind of hands the baton to Peter. He says, Peter, you're a rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. And he just kind of calls him out, kind of lifts him up. He says, you're going to be like this. And then he turns around and he starts predicting that he's going to die. Peter interrupts him. Interrupts him and says, listen, you can't say that. You know, if I'm the leader of this, uh, this whole thing, then, then hey, listen, let's, let's keep this mo- movement going here and you're going to kill it before we even get started. Jesus turns around and calls him Satan. One time he calls him a rock, another time he calls him Satan. The very same passage because he was trying to stop him from going to the cross. Incredible. Other times it talks about him giving predictions that he's going to die or excuse me, he's going, the temple's going to be destroyed in three days and it will be resurrected and they laughed at him he was speaking in this kind of parable kind of way to just point to I'm going to die but I'm going to come back I'm going to conquer this death thing I'm going to conquer it finally it says in the scriptures that he set his face on Jerusalem so he knew why he came he lived why he came He came to die. He came to die to shed his blood so that we could have the forgiveness of sins. We cannot make light of this. This, this what we symbolize today in a meal, this is what brings restoration. Jesus Christ, death, burial, resurrection brings restoration. Isn't it a bit odd though to you, to me? I think it is. When you think about when Jesus was preparing to go, He didn't set his disciples down to a great big long lecture. He set them down to a meal. N.T. Wright says it like this. When Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was about, he didn't give them a theory. He gave them a meal. And then he said, I'm not, I'm not going to celebrate a meal again with my disciples this meal again until I come. And we're looking forward to that day of His coming. We're anticipating that day. I want you to take the next few moments before we take this. Don't take the cup yet, the the, the meal. Let's take it together and just reflect for a few moments, if you will. element you hold in your hands is a piece of bread. It's an unleavened piece of bread. It's not fluffy and full like you might normally think of bread. Because leaven represented sin. So they would make bread at the Passover that didn't have the element in there to make it rise. Also didn't have the same level of taste, I guess you might say to it. But it has tremendous meaning. John chapter 6, Jesus said this. He said, 
I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall know, shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The concept of Jesus being bread, that he broke bread with his disciples, that his body represents bread. We take this bread today in remembrance of a Savior who came to us emptying himself. The second element being that of the cup, representing the blood of Christ. When you think about just one little small cup of juice, go deeper. Think about the last time you lost it. The last time you had that secret meeting, that thought that tore down your character, that tears down our lives every day. And thank God for the blood that covers us without the shedding of blood. There's no forgiveness of sin. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. This cup is the new covenant. A covenant is beautiful. Not a contract, a covenant. You have the Old Testament, the New Testament are covenants from God. Covenant is based on trust and love. A contract is based on distrust and look, me looking out for my best interest. A covenant is me saying, I'm going to look out for your interest and this is what I'm going to do for you. This is why we celebrate a covenant together. A new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance 